Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to the book of Luke. If you've been with us through the month of December, you're aware that we're going through a study of uh, the Christmas narrative in the book of Luke. Today we'll be looking at the end of Luke chapter 1 and specifically at Mary's song. So this part of the narrative that we're going to look at today actually uh, picks up, it's, it's, a, it's a continuation of the passage that we went through last week, and Pastor Brent walked us through uh, that passage in Luke, where the angel appears to Mary, and then Mary goes and visits Elizabeth, and we read of Elizabeth's greeting to Mary, and Elizabeth's baby, John the Baptist, in the womb, leaping for joy at the sound of Mary's voice and at her presence and the presence of the child within her. And so immediately, as a continuation of that narrative, Mary now is going to respond. She's going to respond to this greeting that she received from Elizabeth. And so we want to look uh, this morning at this passage. We're going to be in Luke chapter 1. We're going to read from verse 46 down through 55 as we walk through uh, this passage concerning the birth of Jesus and specifically uh, concerning Mary's song. The Bible reads this way, and Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. And from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors." Now, as we look at this passage this morning, I do want to let you know if you have a bulletin with you uh, this morning, there is a handout, a half page uh, in the bulletin that will help you follow along as we walk through this passage. As we walk through, I want us to talk a little bit uh, just about the structure, because as Mary uh, Mary gives uh, this response, the scripture tells us here, as Mary said, but really what we have here before us is, is, a sort of a, is a sort of a poem. This is not just simple narrative. Mary is composing, if you will, a song, uh, a poem. And any time that we, we're dealing with, with poetry, there's a certain structure to it. Now, as I look across the congregation, I realize that we have some of our college students back, and as well as some of our high school students. I'm I'm going to do my best effort not to give them PTSD thinking they're back in you know, a, a high school or college literature class here, but I think it's important for us to see 
the structure of what Mary is saying because this is going to have an impact as we look at the substance. So when we, when we look at the structure of the song, there's two different perspectives that Mary gives. One of them is, we could call it a, a telescopic perspective. This is where the narrative zooms in and she is talking about herself and what the Lord has done for her. And then later on in this song, she will zoom back out and give us more of a panoramic view where she puts her situation in the light of everything that is happening and that God has been doing through the ages with the nation of Israel. Now within this poem as well, there's, there's some parallelism and, and the way that it's developed, and this is very characteristic uh, of Hebrew, of old, and we see this a lot in the Old Testament of, of poetry. We'll see this even if you think of the Proverbs. Oftentimes there is a statement that's given and then that statement is reinforced either by an expansion that gives more details or develops the statement, or it's a statement followed by a contrast, which gives the opposite side of that initial statement. And we'll find both of those in here. Mary will give a statement and then expand on that, especially in the first half of this song from verse 46 down through uh, verse 49. And then at the very end in verse 45 and, or I'm sorry, 54 and 55, she will give this idea in, in terms of a statement and then an expansion. And then when she talks in verse 51 to 53 about what the Lord has done and con contrasting uh, the proud and the arrogant with the humble, she gives that in terms of the, the statement and the contrast. And then, of course, there's, there's a lot of repetition that we'll see that happens throughout this this structure. So let's jump in as we look at this narrative, as we look at this song that Mary sings in response uh, to Elizabeth's greeting and really in response to everything that the Lord has been doing. The, appear the angel's appearance to Zechariah in the temple, now the angel's appearance to Mary, and then the response of Elizabeth and of John the Baptist as Mary appears. And Mary gives this song, and it's not just the form that interests us, it's the substance of this form. It's understanding what is Mary saying here. She begins by talking about what God has done for her. And so she'll, she'll give this idea of what God has done for her. She'll then reflect on his character as she expands out to what God has done for the nation. So, when we see what God has done for Mary, in verse 46 and 40, 47, she responds, her initial response is that of exaltation and praise. She says, verse 46, my soul magnifies or glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Now, at a very simple glance, we understand the gist of what Mary is saying, but there's some words in here that I think are important for us to highlight to really capture the essence of, of what Mary is saying. When she says here, my soul glorifies or magnifies the Lord. In the original, this, this word that she uses starts with a term that we're familiar with, the word mega. It has the idea of making something look bigger, magnifying, making it look bigger. And so this is what Mary is saying. Her response to God is, I want his name to be big, to be great, to be supersized, 
if you will, in the eyes of those who are considering what is going on. And then when she says that my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, this is, it, it speaks of, a, of an outburst or an overflow of joy and of rejoicing. Her natural response to what the angel has said to her, to what God is doing, is an outburst of rejoicing, an outburst of joy that is meant to not make herself look bigger, but to make God look bigger. And so this is how Mary begins her song. And so she gives this statement saying that my soul magnifies the Lord. But now you might ask the question as you're hearing this song, well, why? What is the reason for such an outburst of joy? And she gives the justification for that in verse 48 when she says, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. This idea of being mindful, or as some translations will say, he has looked on. He has looked on my state. It carries the idea not just of looking on in the sense of seeing, but looking on with care and with consideration. She says, here I am, and God has looked on me. He has cared for me. God, who is immense, who is holy, as she will say. But he cares for me. And look at the way that, that Mary is going to describe herself. She says, he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. God cared for Mary despite her humble and vulnerable status as a slave. Now it's interesting because the way that our English versions often translate this and the way that we read it in the ESV it says he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. But that last word servant is the word that is translated or that is used as slave. Now we have to understand why would Mary describe herself this way? Well Mary was living in the midst of a very hierarchical culture. And this isn't the first time Mary will use this word. In fact, if you look back in verse 38, and we saw this passage yesterday, when the angel came and told Mary, this is what is going to happen, and Mary asked this question, how will this happen? How will this take place? And when the angel explained to her, in verse 38, Mary said, behold, I am the servant. I am the slave of the Lord. Being a slave in this culture was a very humble and vulnerable position to be in. Because in this culture, this was a, a very much of a hierarchical culture, where there was not seen to be equality of persons. In fact, in hierarchical cultures, even today, certain people are seen to be inherently more important or worth more than others. And so these are the people that are often looked to and regarded and paid attention to. And those who are seen as insignificant or inferior will often occupy these lower states. The state of somebody as a slave who had no equality. Who oftentimes was treated more as an object than a person. They were used, their lives were of little value, they were used 
to further the life of the master. And so Mary looks at this and she, she explains her, herself as a servant, as a slave in a very humble state. But yet she exalts the Lord because in this vulnerable condition, and especially for a young girl to be a slave, she would be open to all sorts of oppression and injustice and wrongdoing. It was a very vulnerable, vulnerable position. But the only thing in a position like that that would give a slave any sort of safety or security would be the character of the master that she served. And so this is why she begins by saying that she wants to exalt God because he, as her master, instead of treating her as an object, instead of oppressing and using her, he is caring for her. And so Mary says that she wants to, she is overflowing with praise, with rejoicing, because her master, the God, her Savior, is caring for her in her lowly state. And for this reason, she then says in verse 48, in the second part of verse 48, she says, For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. So now she makes this declaration where she begins with praise and exaltation. Now she says all generations throughout history, moving forward, everyone will look at me and consider me as blessed, consider me as favored. It's kind of an expression that we might say when something good happens to someone, we might say, wow, you're really fortunate, or wow, you're so, you're so lucky to have had that happen. Mary says, that's going to be the disposition of people towards me throughout all generations into the future. Someone's going to look at me and say, wow, why were you favored? What in the world is it about you that would make somebody look favorable towards you? And yet Mary says, no, it's not because of me. It's because of him. And look at how she gives her explanation, these expanding statements, in both verse 48 and in verse 49. Starts with two words. It says, for he. You see what Mary is doing here? She's saying, my soul magnifies the Lord. I'm rejoicing in God. Why? Because of him. All the generations in the future are going to look at me and consider me as blessed, consider me as favored. Why? Because of me? No, for he. Because God is at work in Mary's life. And she says that all generations will call me blessed because of what God is doing. And she says, for he who is mighty. She's just described herself as weak, as vulnerable, as little and insignificant. And now she's contrasting herself with God and saying, he who is mighty has done great things for me. And again, in this word great is again that same term that she used at the beginning, that mega. God has done huge things for me. And in response to that, I want to make his name huge. I want to make him look big because of the big things that he has done for me. 
This would have been a very popular response in this kind of a culture. In a culture that was predicated on honor and those who were recipients of honor, of favor, of grace. Their natural response, they could never respond in kind. They could never give anything back in equal measure to the person who had given them favor or grace. So instead, what they would do is they would make that person's name and character known so that everyone would look to that person and their honor would increase. And others would come to that person seeking also the favor that they were able to bestow. And this is exactly what Mary is doing. She says, here I am, weak, insignificant, vulnerable, small, but yet God who is mighty has done these things for me. And this is where she begins to, to shift, to transition, to speak about the character of God. Look at what she says at the end of verse 49. She gives two descriptions of God's character in verse 49 and 50. She says at the end of verse 49, holy is his name. This is a, a declaration of God's holiness, not just in the term of his righteousness, which he is in and of himself. He's righteous, and she will, she will paint this contrast in the verses to follow. But yet, part of God's holiness is also the fact that he is separate, that he is set apart from us as human beings. He is so much higher than we are. He is so much more lofty and elevated. And this was why even throughout the Old Testament, it wasn't just anyone who could approach the presence of God. It wasn't just anyone who could step into the tabernacle or step into the temple. Because God was set apart. God was, was distant. He was so much higher and better than human beings that there was a separation and Mary acknowledges this, but yet she does it in a way of noting that despite that separation, despite God being so much higher and better, yet somehow he looks at me and cares for me. And this is, where, this is what she says in verse 50 when she says, he is merciful. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Aren't you glad this morning that we, not, we serve not only a holy God, but a merciful God? You know, if we served only a holy God, none of us would be here. None of us would be able to stand before him because God would have already dealt out the justice that we deserve for our sins. He is a holy God, but he is also merciful. And this is what Mary is magnifying when she says, he has done these things for me in his great mercy. But not just for me, she says in verse 50, his mercy is for all who fear him. And again, we see this repetition of the word generation, from generation to generation. Reaching back into the past. And for the people of Israel, they would think through their history all the way back to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the patriarchs. 
through the period of Joshua and Judges, when Israel was unfaithful to God, and yet God continually poured out his mercy as they would follow other gods, and God would turn them over to their enemies who would oppress them, and then they would cry out to God, and God in his mercy would continue. And we see that cycle through the judges. And God would be merciful to them. All throughout the kings, from Saul to David to Solomon, the division of the kingdom. And even when God sent his people away into exile, in judgment, Yet he was merciful and after 70 years brought them back into the land as he had promised. And now as they were waiting for this Messiah and had been for 400 years, now these promises are coming that the Messiah is here, that Mary herself is going to be the one to carry this Messiah, to bring him into the world. She said God's mercy is for those who fear him, who revere him from throughout every generation. And now Mary is is transitioning as as she's thinking about this through all these generations. She begins now to talk about what God has done for Israel. And this is where her perspective widens out because now no longer is she just talking about herself and what God has done for her, but she is broadening out the view And now saying, look, this is not just a one-person thing. This is for all generations. This is for all who fear him. And look at how she describes this in three ways in verses 51, 52, and 53. She says, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. Mary sets up in these three verses a contrast between those who are self-sufficient and those who are dependent on God. Look at the way, look at the words she uses to describe those who are self-sufficient in these verses. She calls them proud in verse 51 mighty in verse 52, and rich in verse 53. Now, in these cultures, in the culture in which Mary is is living, those who had riches, who had power, who had position, were often not in, in, in in a state where they had to depend on anyone. They were very self reliant. They could rely on their position to influence others. They could rely on their riches to provide for what they needed. And in many cases, those who were in these roles oftentimes oppressed the poor, oppressed those who were humble. They they walked on their backs, so to speak, to get to where they were going. And yet, in Proverbs Scripture tells us that God resists the proud but gives favor to the humble, Proverbs 3 and verse 34. And both the Apostle James and the Apostle Peter in their epistles will pick up that same idea from Proverbs and say God resists the proud and gives grace or favor to the humble. 
So this is what Mary is doing as she paints this contrast between the proud. And we can look back at the history of Israel and see the way that God did this. We see the way that God was at work to deliver his people from the hand of Pharaoh in Egypt. Remember Pharaoh? Mighty Pharaoh, who was proud, who was looked at as a god. And who, when God came to him through the voice of Moses and Aaron and said, let my people go, he said, who is this God? I don't know him. I don't recognize him as any sort of authority. And what did God do? God took mighty, proud Pharaoh and he laid him low in deliverance of his people. We see it as we go through and even throughout the period of the kings when the nation of Assyria came and besieged Jerusalem and gave all sorts of threats and taunts. And we can read about these in 2 Kings chapter 18 and 19, how they would threaten. And they had this idea of who, what gods of the other nations have delivered their people from our hands. So who is your God to do that? And yet God, in a night, killed 185,000 of the Assyrian hosts and delivered his people, Israel. We read in the book of Daniel, of Nebuchadnezzar, arguably one of the greatest kings at that time, ruling all over the entire world. And you remember in Daniel chapter 3, when he made this great image of gold and demanded that all the people come and bow down before that image. And all of them did, with the exception of three. And Daniel's three friends refused to bow. And you remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were brought before King Nebuchadnezzar. And he said, okay, I'm going to give you a second chance. When you hear all of this music, you're going to bow down. And again, he asked that question, who is this God who will deliver you from my hand? And yet these three men knew their God, knew his character, knew his power, and chose to walk into the fire, and God delivered them miraculously. And then in Daniel chapter 4, we read Nebuchadnezzar's own testimony of everything that he had done. And God humbled him in his pride. And at the end of that, we, we find one of the, the greatest sermons from a pagan king where he says, I extol, I exalt, I magnify the king of heaven. Here's Nebuchadnezzar, the greatest king in the world at that point, who realizes that he's nothing. And Mary says, this is, what God, this is who God is. This is what he has done. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones. And those who are rich, he's sent away empty, all the while God helps those who are humble, who are weak, who are hungry, those who understand their dependence on him, their need of him. And we see this with David, when God told David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 8, he said, I took you from the sheepfold. I took you from being one guy out in the middle of the field and all you're doing is watching over sheep and now I've, I've brought you and I've set you up over my people. Mary says, this is who our God is and this is what he has done. 
But look at what she says now at the end of her song in verse 54 and 55 because she's going to give this idea and maintain that God's kindness to his people, his mercy to his people, was in relationship to the covenant promises that he had made. Verse 54 and 55 say this, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Again, this returns to the idea of God's faithfulness. Why is God merciful? Because it's who he is. He has made a promise, and he is going to be faithful to that promise. And you know, there's so many parallels with Mary's song here to Zechariah's prophecy that we read at the end of this chapter. So look down with me just a few verses. And I want us to read together Zechariah's prophecy and see if you can see some of these same themes that come out in what Zechariah is saying. In Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 67, we read this, And Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, and to guide our feet into the way of peace. We see Zechariah pulling out many of these same themes as Mary did in her song, as she rejoices in God, as she exalts and extols him and magnifies his name for who he is and for all that he has done for his people. So how does this song apply to us? 2,000 years later, we read this song, we can look at its structure, we can look at its substance, but what does it mean for us? Well, I think there's two things that we can, we can understand and apply to our lives as we look at Mary's song this morning. Number one, Mary's depiction of God is consistent with who he is and how he treats us today. Scripture tells us that God, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We serve a God who does not change. He's not whimsical. He's not in a bad mood. We don't have to worry about, oh, well, one day he's like this, and another day he's like that. No, God is the same. And so the same way that God dealt with Mary, the same way that God dealt with his people Israel, is the same way that our God deals with us. 
He is holy. He is righteous. He is just. He is far different from us as human beings, but yet he is merciful and gracious to us. Although we are weak and insignificant, just like Mary. God graciously offers his salvation to those who by faith are humble enough to recognize their need for him and their need of a savior. It's the very one who God provided for us in Jesus. As we've been reading about as we study Luke chapter 1 and 2. So God is gracious to us. And he's gracious to all those who fear him, who understand their need of him, who will declare their dependence on him. And that is a message that in our own culture and our own society is often very countercultural. Because we don't like to declare dependence on anyone or anything. Our culture, we like to be independent and self-sufficient. But yet to participate in God's mercy, we need to be humble. We need to recognize our dependence on him. But secondly, I want us to see that not only is Mary's depiction of God consistent with who he is and how he treats us today, but Mary's exaltation of God is the proper response to the gospel. This good news that we get to celebrate, especially at this time of year, but really every Sunday, every week, all year long, just like Mary said, each of us can look in our own lives and realize God has done big things for us. So we should be ready, as Mary was, to magnify, to exalt, to make his name big and great in the eyes of all of those who are around us. And you know, this Christmas season, we rightly rejoice in the gift that God has given us in Jesus. This was the message of the angels to the shepherds, though. Glory to God in the highest. So while we rejoice in the gift, the focus shouldn't be on the gift, the focus should be on the giver. The glory is not to us, it's to God. God's gift of Jesus isn't meant to be about us, but it gives us a reason to magnify his name and his greatness. Because God didn't give us the gift of Jesus because we are something. He gave us the gift of Jesus because he is something. He is amazing. He is holy and worthy of praise and adoration and exaltation. So as we go through this Christmas season, yes, rejoice in the gift. But let's exalt the giver of the gift. Because this is the same God that we worship. And our response to this God as we celebrate the birth of Christ this Christmas should be that of Mary when she said, my soul magnifies the Lord. May we make him big this season. 
May we, as we walk through this season, point others to this God who is both holy, but who is merciful and gracious to us. And we have that perfect opportunity because especially at this time of year, we celebrate the mercy that he gave us in Jesus Christ. The one who delivers us from our sins. The one who, as we sang about today, who will come and break every chain. The one who will lift himself up. So let us be those like Mary, who magnify the Lord as we rejoice in God, who is our Savior. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Lord, we are grateful and humbled as we look at this passage, as we look at Mary's song. Father, to think that you, who are the mighty one, would look at us and care for us. As the psalmist said, what is man that you are mindful of him? God, we realize that in our universe we are nothing, we are insignificant. And yet, in your grace and your mercy, you looked on us, you cared for us. And you sent Jesus, your Son, to take on our flesh, to bring us redemption, not because of any inherent worth in us, but because it is who you are. You are a mighty God who is holy and who is merciful and gracious to us. So Father, this season, I pray that you would help us, as Mary did, to magnify your name. Help us to focus not on ourselves or not on the wonderful gift that you have given, but to focus on you to make this season all about you so that you might receive the glory and so that your name might be great in the eyes of all of those who we come in contact with. And we know, Father, that this is your plan. And we look ahead to when we will all one day gather around your throne with people from every tribe and tongue and nation and we will praise you for all eternity. So let us do that this season, Lord. Let us exalt and magnify your name, for you alone are worthy. We pray this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.